My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to this podcast of Mercy Unbound. Today with me, I have a guest, Rabbi K.A. Schneider, who had a vision of Jesus on the cross in 1975 and converted to Christianity. He's on fire for the Lord, and we discuss Judaism, Christianity, and his own conversion. I know you'll love this show. Please share it with friends, support us if you can, and God bless. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to Mercy Unbound. As you can tell, I'm a little under the weather, but I have such a great guest with me today that I really felt important to go ahead and tape the show. As you know, Mercy Unbound is a series that aims to spread the mercy of God, provide hope and avenue for healing, and one that will help you better understand this great mercy of God. And uh, with me today is Rabbi A.K. Schneider. Uh, fascinated by his story. There are many similarities in our lives. Um, Rabbi grew up in a Jewish community in Cleveland, and I spent a couple years at the Cleveland Clinic and my GI fellowship in uh, Shaker Heights. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Rabbi, you were in Brook. Uh, what was it? Where did you grow up, Brook? I was uh, in Beechwood. So Beechwood, very close. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Beechwood. And then uh, he was a wrestler. And, and in his younger days, and I was a wrestler in high school as well. I grew up in Northwestern Ohio on the other side of the state. Uh, currently, we've lived in Tampa for over 30 years. And uh, Rabbi went to the University of Tampa for some time. Yeah. So I was reading all this and I thought, well, we, we've got a lot of connections here. Um, so anyways, Rabbi, let's go ahead and get started. Tell me a little bit about your growing up with your Jewish roots um, and Jewish education. And did your Jewish education, I guess, growing up, nurture a close relationship with God? Yes. Let me just, uh, just so I could, so we don't have any of our uh, viewers or listeners confused. So it's K-A. Um, it's Rabbi K-A or Kurt. I said Schneider. it backwards. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. It sounded good. But I just thought if someone was going to try to do a search, I wanted to have, have, give them the, the best information. So what was, uh, what was it like, are you asking, uh, Brian? Growing up, you know, in a Jewish, heavily Jewish area, and did your Jewish faith nurture a close relationship with God? You know, like as, yeah. as we say, uh, yeah, got to know Jesus. Exactly. I hear you. Well, let me say this first of all. I'm going to try to answer it kind of from two different angles. I think, first of all, my own experience is that there was something that God supernaturally just put on me as a child that I always knew there was a God. I mean, I always knew that God existed. I think I had, you know, a purity in my heart by the grace of God towards just basic, simple understanding that he existed. So for example, when I was wrestling, I was so committed to the sport. I trained in such a disciplined manner. I thought that God was going to make me state champ because I trained harder than anybody else. So I just, you know, believe in this God that would make things right in this God of justice. So that was just kind of something uh, that was in me as a human being. But in terms of did my Jewish upbringing foster faith in God, um, I would say yes, in the sense that, uh, you know, I went to synagogue, um, the, you know, there's a certain morality within uh, a lot of the Jewish culture in terms of uh, the way that we treat our families, the way that we treat our children, um, a sense of community. All those things are kind of, you could say, God-given gifts that produce wholeness. But in terms of me being in a religious environment that fed my faith in God, 
I was not in a religious environment. Uh, most Jewish people uh, that I grew up with, and I think it's true worldwide, are more secular than they are religious. Very, very strong in our identity as Jews. But oftentimes, Brian, we don't connect our being Jewish to the Lord. You know, we, we, we realize that the Torah, the Bible says, you know, that we're a unique people. You know, the Lord said in the Torah, I've chosen you to be a unique people to myself out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So there is that sense of being chosen, but it doesn't always translate into leading a responsible, accountable life. We say in Hebrew, Hashem, you know, the name, the name above all names. Now, being chosen people, one of the ways perhaps you were chosen was that you were to bring the Messiah. Isn't that correct? Well, absolutely. Yes. The Lord said to Abraham, through your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul actually quotes that scripture in the book of Galatians. So it's very, very true. And I think that that's an interesting uh, insight, uh, Dr. because a lot of times when Jewish people interpret chosenness, we sometimes um, don't really filter that to the detail of understanding as to what that chosenness actually means. Uh, there is a sense, I think, within the Jewish community, we, we, I think there is a sense that we, you know, you look at the amount of Jewish doctors, the amount of Jewish lawyers, the uh, impact that Jewish people have had upon the earth, especially when you consider proportionally they're only one-fifth of 1% 1 of the world's population. You, you look at how many of them have been leaders in science and medicine and entertainment and the Lord know, you know, on and on, and not, not always for good. So there is a sense within the Jewish community that there's something special about us, but we don't always filter that in to the equation that what is special is that we are the couriers of God's revelation into the earth. Now, fast forwarding a little bit, in 1978, you had a vision of Jesus on the cross. Can you share that experience with us? Yes, yeah, so I was 20 years old, and I hit some real rough waters in my life. You had mentioned uh, that I wrestled all through high school and got a small scholarship to the University of Tampa my first year there. Um, so what happened with me was I started wrestling when I was in seventh grade. And every year that went by, I became more and more engaged with the sport. Till the time I hit ninth grade, I was like, I was like all in and it, and it eventually became my identity. So I was known in my school as Kurt Schneider, the wrestler. I wore a, a, a necklace around my neck with a wrestler on it. I trained all year long. I mean, Brian, I, I trained like a professional athlete. It, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was who I was and what I lived for. But when I walked off the wrestling mat after wrestling my last match in high school, in an instant, I realized that when I looked into the future, wrestling held no water anymore that the world was a lot bigger than people that wrestled 119 pounds. Now, the, the reality is, is that up to that point, my only world were people that wrestled my weight class. That's all I concerned myself with. And there wasn't anybody that I felt that I couldn't beat. So I felt like I was in control in that world. But when I walked off the wrestling mat, suddenly it hit me right in the face. I realized I'm going into a big world now. I'm all on my own. I'm not in control. I'm a little speck of dust in, in, the, in the big picture. And not only that, but I'm going into this world now all alone and nobody can help me. And when that hit me, and it hit me just in an instant, all of a sudden, like I lost my identity, I lost my sense of purpose, and I entered into a state of fear and chaos. 
So I struggled in that state for about two years. I actually spent as much time as possible just sleeping to escape this emotional turmoil that I was in that I didn't know what to do with because I didn't know what to do to replace wrestling. I, I thought about, well, maybe you can become a doctor. But frankly, I knew I didn't have the aptitude to become a doctor. I thought, well, maybe you'll become a lawyer. And I said, that's possible. But what happens when you're 65 and retire from law? You'll feel like you do now again. You'll have lost what you built your life on. You're going to find yourself in the same boat again. So I was very, very lost. So eventually, grasping for straws, I uh, dropped out of college thinking that if I made a lot of money, it would help give me some peace, even though I knew it wasn't the answer because where I grew up, we were in Beechwood, then Pepper Pike, you know, it was a wealthy neighborhood and I knew they had problems too. So I knew that money wasn't the answer, but I thought maybe it'll help. So it was 1978, discotheques were really hot and uh, I decided I was going to open up a discotheque. So really shortening up the story here. My plan was to get investors uh, to uh, invest in this business venture. I would be part owner because I would put it together and run it, but I needed the right location. First of all, that was the first part of the business, but I needed the right area. So I decided to make some money to travel around the country to find the right location for a discotheque. So I started working for a, an encyclopedia company called PF Collier and uh, in a short period of time was promoted to a sales manager. And I was at a sales manager's meeting one night and there was one other sales manager there, he and I, before anybody else had arrived. So we were alone. He was uh, telling me about this book he was reading called Autobiography of a Yogi by this Swami from India named Paramanj Yogananda. And he started telling me about these incredible things that he was reading in this book that this Swami, this Yogi could beat up tigers with his bare hands and, and levitate off the ground. And when I heard that, it really fascinated me. So I went out and bought the book and I thought, God, I thought if this is real, if this guy can really levitate off the ground, I found my new wrestling because this is a higher reality than making money. And I imagine, Brian, how good I would feel levitating off the ground. So like a spiritual awakening is coming over me. I'm in the middle of reading this book. Now, keep in mind, no one had ever shared Jesus with me. I had never read the New Testament. Jesus was as far away to me, I kid you not as he was even farther away to me than the man on the moon. I mean, he was just not part of anything in my life, period. But this night in the middle of 1978, a hot August night in the middle of reading autobiography of a yogi, all of a sudden I'm awoken from my sleep into a heightened state of supernatural awareness. Suddenly I'm aware that I'm aware. And then in an instant, in color, Jesus appeared on the cross. Uh, again, it was in color. I could see the terrain that the cross was staked in. There were people in the distance uh, looking at him as he was being crucified. And then a ray of red light from straight through the sky beamed down on Yeshua's head. That's his Hebrew name, Yeshua. Beamed down on Jesus' head. And when I saw, Brian, that ray of red light from straight through the sky, from above the clouds, above the blue, piercing down through it all, coming onto Jesus' head, I knew the light was coming from God. And as an American, I knew enough to know that the person on the cross was Jesus. That's all I knew. As an, but I knew that God was telling me that Jesus was the way to him. And that vision, the Lord used to save me. Now, that probably caused some uh, discontent in your family. Um, they probably didn't embrace this concept very well. And Am I correct in that? Well, yeah. So what happened was, because Jesus was never talked about in my home, 
I was not uh, aware of the scandal of a Jew believing Jesus in Jesus because it was just like it just never happened. So I had no exposure to you know the consequences or the poly any of it. I mean, he just like I said, he was not there you know for us. So I right after the vision, I I got out of my bed. It was three thirty in the morning. I went to the restroom. I was so excited, Brian, because hope had been birthed in my heart. I mean, even though I knew nothing about doctrine, I knew nothing about Christian doctrine or Christianity. I had never, like I said, been exposed to the teaching of the New Testament. What I did know was that God had just revealed himself to me, that he loved me and had a plan for my life, and Jesus was the way. That's all I knew. But hope came into my heart. Because remember, I was lost. I was struggling. Wrestling was over. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what to do with my life. So I went back to bed, woke up the next morning. I was so excited. Started telling my parents about it. You know, I thought they'd be excited too. And um, eventually uh, they didn't react at first. They thought they probably thought it was a dream and it'd be over. But when they saw that I kept on talking about it, I was telling everybody about it. Eventually I knew a lot of people. Eventually somebody said to me, well, you, you need to go get a New Testament. Even though my close friends were Jews, I knew lots of people and I was telling everybody. So somebody said, you need to go get a New Testament. So I got a New Testament, started devouring the New Testament. And it was like the words were fire coming out of the page uh, to, to me. And then, you know, I'd go to my dad. I'd say, dad, look at this verse. God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. I thought it was the coolest thing since sliced bread, you know, but, you know, they're, and eventually what they did was they um, hired a famous deprogrammer. We were living in Cleveland. They flew he and his team down from California to kidnap me and deprogram me. Hmm. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Um, and, you know, even many Christian families have members who fall away from the faith. And, and yet what I sense you ha had was a, this infusion of knowledge that I have experienced and others I've talked to where, you know, you know, it's the truth and that's it. And um, so I guess that leads me to the next question, though. Um, how how to have Jews received what you received your message how and why do some hold back what what holds them back from accepting Jesus do they think the gospels are made up and fictional just to convert them or help me as a Christian understand yeah 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 well Paul said I would, I would have you know brethren that a partial hardening has come upon the Jewish people until the fullness of the Gentile has come in. And Paul speaks about it in other places of scripture as a veil is over their eyes. And so the first thing I would say is that there's something in God's plan. There's something about God's long-term plan of what he's doing that is beyond us fully comprehending how this could fit into his plan. But somehow this blindness that's on the Jewish people has to do in some way with a mystery of God's redemptive plan. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is there's always only been a remnant of people. So right now, obviously, there's a very, very small remnant of Jewish people that believe, like myself. The remnant will become greater as time goes on. And God's plan for opening the eyes of the Jewish people is largely through the witness of Gentile believers. Paul said that he magnified his ministry to the Gentile that through them he could save his own people, the Jews. Because when I go to a Jewish person, they feel obligated to reject my testimony. 
because they're just taught from birth. A Jew can't be a Jew and believe in Jesus. They're not even taught why. It, you pick it up in the home. And so why is it that Jewish people by osmosis have come to believe that Jews must reject Jesus? I think it's a few reasons. I think number one, the Pharisees of Jesus's day wanted to see him eliminated because they were threatened and jealous of him. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the leading Pharisees got together. We read about this in the Gospel of John. And they said, what are we going to do with this man, speaking of Jesus? For if we let him continue, they said, everyone's going to believe in him, and we're going to lose our place. And then the scripture continues. And from that point forward, they sought to kill him. So the Pharisees of Jesus' day wanted to see him eliminated because he was taking their power away. The people began to follow Jesus, Yeshua, rather than the Pharisees, so they wanted him out of the picture. So Jesus gets crucified. The Pharisees were calling for his execution. They you know, brought him to the Roman authorities, calling him you know, a political uh, threat. They, as a result, obviously, he was executed by the Romans at the, you know, at the pushing forth of the religious leaders of the Jewish community. These Pharisees and what happened not long after that, about 40 years later, was that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. The Romans came in, destroyed the temple. And as a result of the temple being destroyed, a major blow was struck to the Jewish religion that is outlined for us in the scriptures. Because the, Ju Judy the Judaism of the scriptures, the, the relation the, the relationship that the Hebrew people had with their God, yod heh uh, which Jewish people won't pronounce it, but it is, it is used about 7,000 times in the Hebrew scriptures, and most Semitic scholars believe that the God of Israel's name is pronounced something similar to a breathy Yahweh. The relationship with the Jew, that the Jewish people had with their God, the, that Israel had with their God, was based on three primary pillars. The temple, which had been destroyed in 70 AD, that's where they came to congregate. That's where the priesthood was. That's where the sacrifices were offered. It was based upon the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. So when you read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the Torah, what you find is that the way that the Hebrew people had a relationship with God was by coming to the temple, where the priests were the mediators, and then the priest offered up sacrifices on behalf of the people. And it was all based on a blood atonement. So for example, in the book of Vayikra Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11, the Torah says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar, saith the Lord, to make an atonement for your soul, for it's the blood by reason of its life that makes atonement. So from the very beginning, atonement was made for God's people through the blood. So you have the highest holy day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur. That was all about a blood sacrifice that took place in the temple. When the children of Israel received the Torah, Moses sprinkled them with blood. When they uh, were saved out of Egypt, it was the blood on their doorpost. So when that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, what that meant was that that religion of the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices fell. Because without a temple, there could be no sacrifices. And without sacrifices, there was no use for the priesthood. 
So in 70 AD, the three pillars of the religion of Judaism, if I can use that word, collapsed. And so 20 years after that, in 90 AD, the Pharisees, who were the grandchildren now of those that had rejected Jesus. So the Pharisees, who were the grandchildren of those that rejected Jesus, they got together at a console in a place called Yavne. And what they did there is they recreated Judaism. They said, what are we going to do to hold our people and our religion together? We no longer have a temple. We don't have the priesthood. and We don't have the sacrifices. So they recreated Judaism and they substituted the temple and the sacrifices for prayers with, with prayers and rituals. And that the religion that Jewish people have today is based on what these Pharisees did in 90 AD at this consul. Now, the point that I was wanting to really hit home with is this new form of Judaism that was developed in 90 AD and is the foundation of Orthodox Judaism today. So once again, rabbinic Judaism was created in 90 AD and it still exists today. It's the, or, it is the form of Orthodox, Orthodox Judaism. The ones that created it, remember, were the grandchildren of the Pharisees that killed Jesus or wanted to see him killed and were responsible in large measure for his execution. So within this new form of Judaism, there was an anti-Jesus mindset. And there was a number of prayers and, 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 and statements of faith that were uh, uh, indoctrinated at that uh, in, into uh, this, this new rabbinic Judaism. And one of them was a curse against sectarians. And so many scholars believe that that was specifically aimed at any Jew that believed in Jesus. And so you see, for example, in the book of Acts, that Paul was on his way to Damascus to arrest any Jew that believed in Jesus. There was this anti-Jewish, this anti-Jesus mindset amongst the Pharisees, whom Paul was one of. Right. And he actually got to the end of his life, but he still claimed to be a Pharisee. And so that anti-Jesus mindset that began with the Pharisees that called for Yeshua's execution was then passed on to modern Judaism through the creation of rabbinic Judaism in 90 AD. That is the atmosphere of today. So ever since this New Testament period, Jewish people grow up in homes and they're taught by osmosis, Jews don't believe in Jesus. That's why they reject the witness. Now, if you go back to the time of Jesus, were the people, did they, did they feel that this was the time of the Messiah? Were they anticipating or did he catch him by surprise, so to speak? It was, a, it was a time of very, very high, as you know, a very, very high time of messianic expectation. Because remember, there was a, a Gamaliel, uh, when, they, when they were you know, wanting to uh, you know, eliminate Jesus, he constantly said, don't do it, just leave him alone. And then he quoted, talked about another number of other false messiahs that had recently arisen and they had, you know, perished and their movements came to nothing. So we, he said, leave them alone because if he's a false messiah, this movement's going to come to nothing, just like these other false messiahs did. But there was a, it was a great time of messianic expectation. So share with us a uh, more biblical teaching here of, of other reasons, you know, uh, again, did they, you know, in our, in our Catholic mass, 
over the three years, the gospels, the epistles, the old testaments are all brought in. And, you know, we, we listen to the scripture and we understand, we look at these contrasting old new testaments or comparing, and we look and say, man, this is Jesus yeah. is the Messiah. Right. But they didn't, they didn't see it. Right, 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 right. Well, remember, remember Yeshua after he had risen from the dead and um, his um, disciples were walking one day and uh, on a road they called the road to Emmaus. And they were all downcast because, you know, they had left everything to follow Yeshua. And now, as far as they knew, they didn't know what was going on. The world had pulled out from underneath their feet. And Jesus then, he had risen from the dead. He approaches them, but he had on a physical appearance that they didn't recognize. I mean, he's God. He's able to do that. He changed his appearance. And he says, you know, what's wrong, guys? You know, and he kind of plays dumb with them. And they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened? And then the Bible says that Yeshua, without them knowing who he was, he took them on a journey through the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, opening their eyes to the things that were written concerning himself. And so the, when we speak of messianic prophecy, uh, doctor, as you're referring to here, um, a lot of Christians tend to have a very overly simplistic view of, 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 of messianic prophecy. You know, I've heard pastors many times say, you know, there are 300 something messianic prophecies in the Torah and Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. And the chances of that happening are impossible. But it, that, that, to make that statement really is not fully comprehending the subject because many of the messianic prophecies that are quoted in the New Testament that Jesus fulfilled are not prophecies that can be measured scientifically. So let me give you an example. Matthew uses the term oftentimes that the scripture might be fulfilled in the Gospel of Matthew. And then he goes back and he quotes a scripture, for example, from the book of Hosea. So we know Jesus, when he's born, to paint the picture of what I'm referring to here, Yeshua is born. Joseph and Mary are told by the angel to take Jesus into Egypt because Herod's going to kill the male children because he heard a Messiah has been born. So Joseph and Mary bring Jesus into Egypt. Herod dies. Then the angel appears again to Joseph and says, take the child back to Israel. So Matthew records that. And then Matthew says that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from the book of Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt, did I call my son? So uh, uh, Matthew is saying the scripture from Hosea 11 is fulfilled when Joseph brought Jesus out of Egypt back into Israel. But when you go and look at that scripture that Matthew is quoting from, from the book of Hosea, when you read it in Hosea, it doesn't look like a prophecy at all. It actually looks like a statement from past history. It almost reads like the Lord is saying to Hosea the prophet, Hosea, out of Egypt I called Israel. Speaking of the Exodus, 3,500 years ago. It doesn't look like it's a statement that's predicting something that's going to happen in the future. Right. But yet people are saying, what was the chance of Jesus fulfilling that prophecy? My point is, is that Jesus fulfills messianic prophecy, sometimes scientifically, like, for example, that he would be born in Bethlehem, um, you know, uh, that he, that the Messiah would die for the sins of the people, 
But, you know, Jewish people feel like Isaiah 53, that Jesus would die for the sins of the people. They think that's about themselves. They don't think it's about Jesus. In, in other words, it's very complicated. Right. People, people have to, I mean, I, I'm writing a book about it right now, Messianic Prophecy Revealed. I guess the point that I'm trying to make is the way that Jesus fulfilled Messianic prophecy, sometimes it's obvious, you know, the lineage that he came from. That he'd be, you know, come from the line of David, that he'd be the seed, you know, of Abraham, all those types of things, that he'd be from the tribe of Judah, those things you could say, yeah, Jesus fulfilled that. Um, but a lot of the messianic prophecy, Jesus fulfilled in the sense that he repeated Israel's history and filled their history up with meaning. So the same thing that Israel went through, Jesus went through in his own life. You know, Moses was fasting, you know, on the mountain 40 days. What does Jesus do? He goes into the wilderness and he fasts 40 days. Uh, I know that it's a, it's a complicated subject, but maybe if you have a more specific question, maybe I can elaborate a little more. Well, something else just came to my mind because <clears throat> I found this interesting. Jews who believe in Jesus, does Jewish law remain binding on you once you become Christian? And... Is this, right. is Christianity an extension of Judaism or? Yeah, well, those are two really good questions. First of all, let me say um, that I am absolutely not under the law. But let me also say that when you study the law with the desire to be closer to the Lord, I say in Hebrew, Hashem, that's the name, blessed be his name. There's something about the law that helps us to understand that God wants to own and possess and be Lord of every part of our lives. So we told the children of Israel what foods they could eat, what foods they couldn't eat, how, what their clothes should be made out of. Um, he interfered in their days of their week. You know, the Shabbat was the day set apart to him. He talked about, you know, he addressed every area of life. He talked about relationships between men and and, and so to me, I'm not under the law, but I have a great appreciation for the law because the law is a self-revelation of who the Lord is. And so um, I study the law to help me better understand the heart of God, not as someone that is under it, but someone that has a reverence and a respect for the holy God that gave us the law. And I'm looking for spiritual application for my life. So I look at the law, not according to the letter, but I try to apply to my life by the spirit. What can I learn conceptually? Let me give you an example. In one of the laws is that the children of Israel were to, were to build a precipice, which was like a little, a little fence around the roof of their home. And the Lord said, build this precipice around the roof of your home. So am I going to build a fence around the roof of my home? No. But what's the point? The point is, is that in those days, people, you know, lived and played on their roofs. You know, there was uh, gatherings up there. It was a living space. So the Lord was wanting, you know, he so much loves us and is, you know, involved in our life that it's like a safety precaution. So to me, the application, I'm not under the law. I'm not going to build a fence around my roof. But you know what? If it's really icy outside and I've got guests coming over and they're coming to my front door, I, I should put some salt down so they don't trip, trip on my steps. Some, did I, say, I meant some salt, some salt on the ice. Rabbi, you are such on fire. You've got 
a TV show, you've written books. Tell us about your website and the TV shows and- um... Oh, thank you, brother. Thank you, thank you, my brother. So yeah, the name of my website is discoveringthejewishjesus.com, discoveringthejewishjesus.com. It'll give you information about where we broadcast on radio, where we're broadcasting on television. You can get us on YouTube. You can just look up my name, Rabbi. The last name, it's R-A-B-B-I. The last name, Schneider, it's like the trucking company. Not the potato chips, but like the trucking company. And um, uh, so they can find us that way. We're on Facebook. Uh, but yeah, if you just do a Google search on me, Rabbi Schneider, or Discovering the Jewish Jesus, there'll be a plethora of different you know, avenues. We have a lot of books that are available on Amazon that uh, we've written here. One dealing, uh, Dr. Brian, with some of the things that we've talked about today. I have a book called The Lion of Judah, which basically traces historically how Judaism and Christianity historically separated from each other and why. And also what I do is I bridge the connection to show, which is to point uh, your second question here, is Christianity an extension of Judaism? And it absolutely is the, 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 the end point of biblical Judaism. Because biblical Judaism is that the seed of Abraham would bring a blessing to the world. Abraham entered into a relationship with God through revelation and faith. And that's how everybody today enters into, into a relationship with God, through the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah and through faith. And through those two things, we're brought into covenant relationship. God atones for our sins through the blood of Jesus. And we're trained to follow him by the Holy Spirit. Below this image, uh, behind me is the image of Jesus, the divine mercy, and the words he wanted below the image of Jesus, I trust in you. And I think of all the fear you mentioned in your life. So many people are living in a state of fear and don't know God and where's all their life going. And, and um, Jesus, I trust in you has really got to be the anchor in our life. Um, any, any closing thoughts here, uh, Rabbi, before we wrap this up? Well, first of all, I just appreciate your humble spirit, Dr. Brian, and your desire to, to continue to grow and learn. I love you, my brother. And I thank you for having me on uh, as your guest tonight. And I also want to give a big uh, shalom peace to everyone that has an opportunity to, uh, to listen to this podcast. Well, thank you again, Rabbi, for joining me on Mercy Unbound. People, you can um, listen to the uh, shows at drbrianthatcher.com or the podcast at all the usual formats and uh, stay tuned next time, Rabbi. I'd love to have you back to on a variety of topics, um, help educate me and the people and uh, keep up the great work and God bless you. Thank you, my brother. Okay, please subscribe to our YouTube channel for the video portion. The podcast can be heard at anchor.fm slash drbryan, B-R-Y-A-N, Thatcher, T-H-A-T-C-H-E-R and on all the major podcast forums. I would love to speak at your church or conference, and please consider supporting our efforts to spread the truth to a hurting world. Thank you again. And for more information, go to the website at drbrianthatcher.com.